Tonight, as we come back to Deuteronomy, we've done one topical study so far in Deuteronomy, and now we come back to chapter 2, and we're going to do our second topical study in Deuteronomy. And as we come to Deuteronomy, realize that in this book, this is Moses with the children of Israel in the last month of his life on the east side of the Jordan River in Moab, and he's going to Deuteronomy means the second law from, the, from a Greek word in its root origin, which really it's not a second law, but it's the expanding or the explanation of God's law from Exodus and Leviticus by Moses here. So what he's doing is he's recounting God's law in detail in this incredible sermon, the book is essentially a sermon, to the next generation of Israelites, those who were under 20 from the failure at Kadesh Barina 38 years prior, who are going to go in the land and conquer it along with Joshua as their leader and Caleb as the other witness from the 12 spies that were sent out. And he's going to recount here in the early chapters, he's recounting what God did for them. And then he's going to get right into teaching the law for like 30 chapters. So in this early part of Deuteronomy, the first four chapters, we're getting a review of their journey. So Moses is recounting God's faithfulness in the past to bring them to here's where it's at for you. And here's what you need to think about as you and your generation go into the promises and your children and your children's children, how are you going to raise them that they may live in those promises once we're in the promised land. And that's where we're at. So here in chapter two, we're still in that early part of Deuteronomy where Moses is reviewing God's faithfulness to them and recounting what God had done. And so we're going to read a few verses here in chapter two, and then we're going to look at a couple other verses, not so much in uh, verse by verse, but looking at a couple verses throughout these two chapters that connect to our topic tonight. So in chapter 2, verse 1, we read this. After the failure at Cadiz Perina, when the people refused to go in to enter the land because of the bad testimony of the ten spies, they chose to believe that instead of the good testimony of the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, we read as Moses, as recounting these things, says this. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and we skirted Mount Seir for many days. Mount Seir is a range of mountains, not just one. It's that region south of the Dead Sea, and it's a mountain range, and that's where they were for many days. Verse 2, and the Lord spoke to me, saying, you have skirted this mountain long enough, turn northward, and command the people, saying, you are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourself carefully. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness these 40 years. The Lord your God has been with you. And you have lacked nothing. And when we passed beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, we dwelt in Seir, away from the road of the plain, away from Elath and Izion-Geber, we turned and passed by the wilderness of Moab. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given our to the descendants of Lot as a possession." Now, Moses goes on to describe more of this journey, and then he comes forward to the very back end of the journey in verse 24, where he gets to the stories of uh, Sihon and Og. And this is what we read in verse 24. So after they knew which way not to go and who not to mess with, he says this, uh, the Lord said, rise and take your journey, cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven 
who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Then later on in chapter 3, verse 1, the attention shifts to another uh, king, King Og, whom they defeated, and it says this, Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all of his people, to battle at Edrei. And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all of his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon. This is the chronological order of the journey that they had in the wilderness for 40 years, particularly the back 38 years, because this text tonight picks up after the failure at Cadiz Barina, which happened two years into their journey. So as we look at this text, the very first phrase of verse 1 of chapter 2 says, and they journeyed in the wilderness. And that's really what this was. It literally was their journey in the wilderness. For everyone over 20 who refused to go in and take the land and believe the bad report, theirs was a journey, a journey of death. It was a death march for the next 38 years. And then for everyone under 20, it was a time of preparation. So you have two parallel things happening. We've talked about this. You're waiting for everyone over 20 to die off in this wilderness, and they will for the next 38 years. And then you're watching God work and prepare everyone who is under 20 to come through the wilderness to be better for it, and then to enter into the promised land and all the promises that God has for them. So one generation's on the way out. That was the census at the beginning of Numbers. And one generation's about to go in, and that's the census at the, book, at the end of the book of Numbers. And we have two generations with two different destinies, one having sealed their fate with unbelief and the other still undecided with a fresh opportunity for them. As we say, there's always generations in motion. We all have our chance and life goes by very quickly. And even as they had to decide what they were going to do under 20, how their their worldview, how they see things, so too the next generation we see right now all around us is deciding what's going to shape their life, what's going to shape their worldview. Is it going to be God's law, God's word, God's promises, his presence, his power, his promises? Or is it going to be repeating mistakes of previous generations? And only time will tell. I don't intend to be around in 2060, and I don't suppose many of you will be either. But if you're around in 2060, we'll know a lot more about what the millennials chose to do and Generation Z with their timeline. But for now, it's us, Gen X and baby boomers, most of us in here tonight. Now, it was a journey, and Moses said, we turned and journeyed. That phrase encapsulizes the next 38 years. We turned and did our journey. Being in Colorado this last weekend, many of you know, not only do we have, uh, do we have the birth of uh, Remy, our fifth grandchild, but it was also for Jennifer and I, our 33rd wedding anniversary. In, in, we were there in Colorado, and we went to Colorado on our honeymoon, so it was very special to be where we went on our honeymoon 33 years ago. Being there and... 33 years of marriage, that got me thinking a lot about like our, our wedding day, our honeymoon. And then wouldn't you know it, today the guys were down there at the beach at 6th Street and some photographer setting up to do cheerleading photos for Edison High School yearbook. And I go to talk to the photographer and ask them what time they're doing it because they're right where we're at. And I'm like, hey, if we're going to have a whole thing, maybe we need to move down the beach. And lo and behold, it's Danny Minton, my wedding photographer. I was like, Danny, I just posted your picture yesterday. Danny Mitten, you know, I gave him a big hug, and the guy's like, why is he hugging this photographer right there? It's, it's Danny Mitten, our wedding photographer. And we were just talking. I'm like, I'm looking at the person who 33 years ago did our wedding photos, and uh, it gets you thinking. 30 years, 33 years is almost like 38 years. 33 and 38, they're, you know, they're, they're not that far apart. When you've been married 33 years, you've you got things to think about. Now, some of you here have been married longer than 33 years. Some maybe a little bit less. Some maybe newly married 
you're in the front of the journey where for me it's like, hey, this is what the journey looks like right now. And there's this window of 10 years, maybe, Lord willing, and there's another window of 10 years. And then I'm 80. And I know how things slow down at 80 because I've seen it it, taking care of my parents and my in-laws and all that. It's it's very interesting for me, a very reflective time in my life just last week. So they turned and journeyed. And life is a journey. Of course, many of you know one of my favorite sayings has been, enjoy the journey. As I've gone through that process, I thought, you want to share the journey too. Like, you can't enjoy the journey if you're not sharing the journey. Because it's just not, you know, we're meant to be interconnected and with, with humans in the human experience. So you want to enjoy the journey, but you want to share the journey. And these guys had a journey, and they shared it. And for someone like Caleb and Joshua, they actually enjoyed it. And they came through it better for it and ready for the next things in their life. While they watched people die, and it was hard to watch, a death march for everyone else, but Joshua and Caleb. And then the next generation, they got ready, and hopefully they enjoyed their journey. But we know we're on a journey. And even again this morning when Sam was teaching the men, he kept talking about that our home is in heaven. And he talked about the legacy of the Rechabites, and he talked about, you know, Peter, where it says that we're uh, conduct ourselves a certain way as we're pilgrims and sojourners, and just being reminded that we are on a journey. And it goes so very, very fast. I didn't plan it this way, but I won't be here for my 60th birthday next week, and I'm glad. So wish me happy birthday when I'm not here. You can't do anything to me when if I'm not here, right? Okay, so five grandkids, 33 years married, and a 60th birthday coming up next week. I'll be with my family in Florida for my 60, 60th birthday. And that's pretty much, you think about that. You know Vero Beach on a Sunday afternoon with your family in Florida? Doesn't that sound like your 60th birthday? I mean, come on, that's, that's pretty, I'm feeling that one with the dolphins going by, the white sand beach, I pick up a few shells on the beach, seems appropriate for 60. So it goes fast, it goes fast, 40 years will go fast, 38 years will go fast, 10 years go fast, 5 years go fast, it just goes fast. I remember when Jennifer and I got married, uh, five years into our marriage, we were in Virginia Beach, and for our fifth wedding anniversary, I got one of those Hummels, those precious moment Hummels, remember when they used to have those? And it was a five-year anniversary, we still have it. It's made the cut through 30 years. You know, certain things, you, it's still there. So I really, again, I'm, I'm back on the journey because that's the context. These two chapters are about the journey, their journey, and what was in it for them. Now, tonight, because we've been looking at the journey, but tonight we're going to look at the relationship of Israel, the nation, and we've got to keep in mind the younger generation because the older generation is just going to die. Like, they've gone their way. They're, they're, there's, no, there's no turning back for them. So they're kind of like, they sealed their fate. But we're really thinking about is everyone that was under 20 at Kade, after Cadis Marina. So at 38, 38 years, so they could be 58. So the, the group that Moses is talking to could be as old as 58, but they're not over 60. They're under the 60 clip. And who's to be hearing this review of the journey, that it means something to them that they can apply to their future, which is very appropriate for uh, most of us here tonight. If you're over 60, you can just apply it anyways, as Lord would apply it to you. And it's about the relationship of three things. There's three things that we saw tonight that Israel had a relationship with that was shaping them in their journey for what ultimately the future had. And so as we think about our journey and we think about these things, and we're all on it, First thing we draw attention to is their relationship with Mount Seir. Not a people, but a mountain. Mount Seir, as I mentioned reading it, parenthetically, I told you, this is a mountain range. This isn't particularly one mountain. It's a mountain range. And it says in the New King James verse 2, it says that they skirted this mountain long enough. 
The old King James says they compassed it. I'm like, these are interesting. Like, uh, you know, these, these are words that we need to think about. But then if you look at the Hebrew word, it, its root word means to encircle or to surround or be surrounded by. And it can even mean whirl, whirl circle, like you're whirling in circles. So if you look at the word itself, and that's what we need to do to just get a better understanding, because God says you've done this long enough. You've skirted this mountain, not one mountain, but this mountain range in the southern Judean side below the Dead Sea. You, you've done this. Now, a couple weeks ago in Numbers, we read verse by verse every place they stopped, 41 places in their 38-year journey that they had gone to during that timeline. And here, Moses just summarizes, summarizes it, you've gone in circles long enough. They literally were going in circles. And they were skirting this mountain range, and it was just like this. So this first few verses represents like 37 years of their journey because the rest of chapter 2 and 3 represents that final year and a half or so when they were rejected to go through Edom by the Edomites, when they, you know, engaged Sihon and Og and defeated them. It all accelerated. So these first few verses encompass a long period of time, skirting this mountain long enough, and then the, the avoiding... Esau's descendants, the Edomites, and then engaging Sihon and Og, that all happened in the last two years. See, like 36 years, if you will, of skirting this mountain range, and then finally now go. And that gets our attention. They literally were in a rut. They were literally in a neutral gear, if you will, for about 36 years. That's a long time to be going nowhere. Do you know anybody that's been going nowhere for 36 years? <laughs> I think we do. There's a lot of people that live their life and never go anywhere with the Lord. They, they never get started on their journey. They just live in their own life recklessly or carelessly. And so it's not coincidental that Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And if we think that, and we think and say that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, then we realize that he is the journey. Of course, Jesus is the beginning of our faith. And we're born once in Adam and sin and death. Then we're born again. We put our faith and trust in Jesus. Thus, the great journey begins. And then there's a life that's going to be lived through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the journey that counts. All their journeys just, they don't matter. The journey never really begins, obviously, until we give our life to Christ. Now, the journey of life begins, and you can live your life, and you can live 80 years any way you want to, with or without the Lord. But these were the people of covenant, so the better context is related to people who have given their life to Jesus Christ. But how many people confess Christ and just go in circles around Mount Seir or never leave the valley in the shadow of Mount Seir? How many people confess Christ and never enter into an abundant life that Jesus talks about? Never turn the corner on certain things. They're shallow and superficial and never get deep root and depth with the Lord. And that's not what we want. We want to go deeper with the Lord. And you think about it. The letters to First and, first and Second Corinthians to the Corinthian church dealt very much with people that were scooting Mount Seir. They just, they, they, they were truly saved. They were truly born again. They had a saving relationship. But they were carnal. So when we think about Christians and people confessing Christ, whether it be me or you or anyone who confesses Christ, not really going forward, not really in personal growth going forward into the abundant life that Christ has for us, not really growing in the knowledge of the word, not really growing in the things of the spirit, not really growing in the understanding of the character of God and the heart of God. That's like the Corinthians. 
So to just stay at Mount Seir as, a, as someone who confesses Christ, to just be at Mount Seir and to go in circles and to not get out of that rut or out of the, the neutral gear, all you have to do is nothing. If we, don't try and, if we don't seek the Lord, if we don't proactively look to build ourselves up in the faith, we will just be carnal. The, the devil knows that. Our flesh knows that. And our, even in our human nature, as we look in the mirror, if we're honest, we know that. The way to drift from the Lord is just to do nothing. The way to grow in the Lord is to proactively get after the Lord and do things. But if we just do nothing and just sit in the shadow of Mount Seir and we're content to have a self-serving Christian faith, uh, sort of a self-absorbing one where the orbit is really around us and what Christ does for us and it's really about how I get ahead or, you know, 20 principles that I'm going to have a good life and not be in debt or something like that, we've missed the whole point. Because we know that if we're going to grow in our faith, we must lose our life to gain our life in Christ. And that's really where the journey is. So the way to get out of Mount Seir as a believer is to get past ourselves. For what will it profit a man or woman if they gain the whole world and yet they perish? Jesus said, if we come after him, we must deny ourselves and seek first his kingdom. And we must love him and put him above all other relationships in the human experience horizontally. And only then can we truly enter into abundant life and fulfill his plans within us in our character and fulfill his plans through us for our calling. Mount Seir is a very real historical place, and what it represents is a very real spiritual place for a lot of people who call themselves Christians. And we don't want to be me or you or anyone listening to me. When Sam was teaching the men this morning, he talked about how most people fear physical death, but very few people fear spiritual death, the death of the soul. And that just so, that really got my attention. Because if you think about what's happened in the last 20 years in our country and the planet as a whole, is the death of the soul of humanity. We've desensitized ourselves to humanity and the design and order of humanity that God has. And all the beautiful things of Christianity where it elevates the needy, it elevates women and equal rights of women, all these beautiful things and true education and a biblical worldview it's all just been completely destroyed pretty much in 20 years on a global level, affecting the entire church. Where the confusion over origin, the confusion over gender, the confusion over marriage, it's so anti-biblical and it's so ungodly. It's, it's, it's so sad. At this point, after 20 years, it's, just really, it's not so much something you're mad about. It's just sad. It's grievous. It's sad and it's sorrowful. But... Even if the world has allowed its soul to be killed, we cannot allow the soul of the church to be killed. Because the soul of the church is the mind of Christ and the word of the Lord and his calling. So in our journey, for each of us individually and for our homes, we got to be really careful about Mount Seir. And if we do nothing, we'll just stay at Mount Seir. We, we want to grow. I was, I was thinking about this on this trip. Many of you know I like to think in a four-square template. And um, I was thinking of the letter F in a four-square template. And I thought, well, faith is the most important thing in a four-square template. So if you have a four-square template and your cornerstone is right here, that would have to be faith. For without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? I mean, faith is the most important thing. We're called to live by faith. Paul said we walk by faith, we'll live by faith, we're saved by faith. Faith is everything. And I thought, well, okay, if faith is there, then probably focus would be, this is the stuff I do when I'm just, my eyes closed on a plane, it looks like I'm sleeping. But uh, focus, it would be like vision, right? Because it says 
that the people without a vision perish. Habakkuk said, write the vision, make it plain so he who reads can run with it. When Posh was here from Russia last week, we were talking about different things in Russia, and I said, you need to write the vision and make it plain. You know, when someone, when someone asks you, when, when uh, Pastor Ken Ortiz asked Pasha about things in Russia, he couldn't give a clear answer. And I go, Rush, I said to Pasha, I go, listen, you, when someone says like this, you, it's, it's, well, remember the guys were at the conference, they know the book of Nehemiah, when the king said to Nehemiah, what's on your mind? He goes, I'll tell you what's on my mind. He knew exactly what was on his mind and exactly what he wanted. That's a vision. So we say faith and focus. Focus is a vision. But you got to have faith. So you have faith. Say, oh, here I am, Lord, I'm mine. Then you get the focus. Then I thought, friendship up here is to be friendly. Because people perceive Christians right now as against them if they're not Christian. Jesus was a friend. And there's a friend that sticks closer to a brother. And I thought, you know, what we need is, we don't need to compromise the faith, but we want to be friendly. Jesus made friends wherever he went. I mean, of course, he had, had his headbutts with the religious hypocrites. But even then, he, Simon, you know, well, I came to your house, did you know my head? Did you do something, you know, this woman's washed my feet with her hair and her tears. Like, even then, he was still teaching. I thought, well, you know, everyone loves a friendly person. Because a friendly person is kind of, they, they ask you questions about you instead of you telling them. A friendly person asks someone about their life. I want to know more about you. But a self-serving person is like, it's all about me and this is what I do, blah, blah, blah. So a friendly person is, to be a friend, one must be friendly. So, well, I want to be a friendly person. And then I want to have fruit. Right? So those are my four Fs, right? So faith, focus, friendly, fruit. This is my latest four square. But I thought to get to fruit, real fruit for eternity, you've got to have faith. And you've got to have clarity of purpose to be proactive in the calling. And then you, 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 it's all about people and relationships. So for me, I just think in simple terms. And, but in thinking about the journey, I was like, if you do these things on the journey... You have a vision. You're, you know you're called to live by faith, so you're going to get and get after it. You have a sense of vision of what the day holds, what the week holds, what the months hold, the year, and, you, and you've got ideas. You, you, you're like, hey, after the men's ministry today, I was just thinking like all these ideas, like, hey, this is what we need to, this is where we're at, this is, where we, this, this is the first step in where we want to go. Like, that's, that's faith. And, you know, talking with people, this, this is it. So Mount Seir is a place where you don't have faith. Mount Seir is a place where you don't have vision. Mount Seir is a place where you're not friendly because you don't care. It's just you. And Mount Seir is definitely not the place of fruit. Because how much fruit can you have when you're going in circles in the desert doing nothing? So Mount Seir, the relationship of Israel with Mount Seir was a difficult one. And the way you pull out of Mount Seir, if that's us or me or a church or anybody, is just, the Lord says, you screwed it long enough. Turn northward. You have to turn. Something has to turn. When you're in a rut. When we were in Japan a couple of years ago at the World Surfing Games, the very first day we had this team of athletes together, the two Hawaiian girls and a couple of the guys from California and stuff. And we all came together. We met the Hawaiian girls at the airport at Narita Airport. And we were on the bus. And we got our rental car. And uh, I, I, I was backing up on these, these super narrow roads in Japan. If you've ever been to Japan, it's like super, in the village is super narrow. And uh, I, I, I was backing up, and we went off. And we're in a, we're in a rut. We're in a true rut. And uh, everyone had a good attitude about it. We've been traveling for like 36 hours. As they all got out, and we're trying to get out of this rut. And um, they kept saying, you got to turn the wheel the other way. We had to change the direction to get out of the rut. We had to change the direction to get out of the rut. 
And we did. And we gathered at and, uh, old Kevin Schultz, the, the really good surfer from San, San Clemente, said, this was a team effort exercise for Team USA. I said, exactly. It's exactly what it was. It's actually Joey just backing up, not seeing the rut. <laughs> but it was a good rut. It was a pretty good rut. Like the van was like this. But, but I was turning the wheel the wrong way. Like you got to turn the wheel the other way. That's how you get out of the rut. God says, turn. Turn and go north. Because you're going in circles. You're just going like this. So you got to change the direction. And what's repentance? It's a turning. It's a 180 degree turn. So if you feel like you've been at Mount Seir, personally, or just envisioning like that, we got we to get back to basics, and we got to turn, and we got to go from things that distract us and, and hinder us. We got to turn from those things that are uh, obstructing us, and we got to turn and get going in the right direction to the next step, the next thing that's what God wants to do in our life. That's what we have to do. That's what we need to do. We also see the relationship with their brethren, the Edomites and the Moabites. So the Edomites, of course, were the descendants of Esau. So Esau was Jacob's brother. Israel is Jacob. His name was Jacob. God changed his name to Israel. The 12 tribes come from him. Esau was his twin, but uh, not look like twins. And the Edomites came from them, the Israelites from there. And God gave them land. He gave them their territory. And God says, Israel, that's not your territory. Don't meddle with them. They're afraid of you. Don't harass them. Don't meddle with them. Then the land there of Moab, that, that particular land was the descendants of Lot, the nephew of Aaron. So if you go, Abraham. So if you go up the flow chart, you have Father Abraham, the father of all the Jews, and his brother's son was Lot, and that land belonged to them. God promised to them. So basically, next to the promised land were two large territories that God had given to other descendants from the household of Abraham. Now, they weren't the people of covenant, but they were descendants, and God gave them things and promised them things. In this text of chapter 2 and 3, chapter 2, actually, God says, this is what I've given them. It is theirs. It is not for you. It is theirs. It is not for you. And God says, therefore, do not meddle with them. Do not harass them. Uh, or as we might say in 2020 and 2019, stay in your lane and stay out of their lane. It's other people's business. It's other people's stuff. It's not your stuff. It's not your territory. It's not your business. So you go there and you try and buy the food and try and buy the water. You don't take anything. You respect them. You respect their place, their being, their purpose, my calling on their life, what I have for them. You respect their boundaries. Stay in your lane and do exactly what I tell you. This is important in our journey too. Because we don't want to meddle in other people's stuff on our journey. Life is too short to, to meddle with other people's business. Now, when you're young, you don't maybe necessarily think that. But when you get older, you only got so much gas in the tank. And you just don't want to spend it up spinning your wheels, trying to please other people and their business. No one likes a busybody, and no one likes a meddler and a gossip. And that's what's, of course, we've talked about this. That's what's been really hard in 2020. It's been so much meddling. Everyone's got an opinion about everybody else and the decisions they're making in their leadership or their authority, whether it's spiritual or political or family or whatever. Everyone's got an opinion. And it, it's, it's really been difficult for the body of Christ this last year because there's been so much meddling and just stirring up trouble for other people that's none of our business. One thing that the Calvary Chapel Association did early on during the pandemic 
is Don McClure, who many of you know and who I respect very much. He sent out a letter early on. He said, look, there's no uniformitarian statement to guide the Calvary chapels at this time. He says, because we are in many different countries, we're in many different states, and we're facing many different regulations and circumstances, not only on a state level, but on a county or city level. We're dealing with mayors, city health departments. We're dealing with county board of supervisors. We're dealing with all, we're just dealing with very different, even different types of state government structures. Who's making the final say? And he said, so the advice they gave, and then there was silence almost until Christmas time. The advice they gave was, Seek the Lord, you and your leadership, for your church, where you live, as God is guiding you to guide you through this. And that's exactly what we did. That was good counsel. And that's what we did. And I think we've stayed out of a lot of stuff. Um, Obviously, I got worked up more than once about stuff. As I said before, most of it was during announcements, so I didn't have too many edits on the studies. But we all got worked up. There's things that got us worked up. I mean, it was frustrating. We've never seen anything like this. But as it played out in the latter part of last year, it was hard is watching church attack and meddle in other people's business. I don't do a whole lot of social media anymore, but in the back end of last year, there's a certain Jesus type of people I quit following because they weren't so Jesus type anymore. And they felt like it was their purpose to, to be judge and jury of all these other people in their ministries. And I, I got sick of it, to be honest. I, it made me sick. I just got sick of it. I said, we should just be focused on what we're called to do and and do it well, and then we'll naturally flow. It's like an orchestra. If we're playing our instrument properly in conjunction with the conductor, then the cello, the piccolo, the drums, the violin, the cello, the French horn, it sounds beautiful. It sounds like Mozart. It's beautiful. But if I'm playing my French horn and I'm critiquing Mr. Trombone over here, then I'm off, I'm off cadence. If we just stay on cadence for our walk with the Lord, and our house with the Lord, and our church with the Lord, we'll do just fine. There's a cadence. There's a flow that God has for each one of us. And that's what we need to be walking in. That's what Paul had in mind when he wrote the Thessalonians concerning the will of God. And he went on to say that, uh, that we should... Uh, Aspire to live a quiet, peaceful life. Mind our own business and, and just aspire to live a quiet, peaceful life. And life's a lot easier when you're just seeking the Lord, you fear the Lord, and you do the right things from the Lord, and you let God take care of his servants. It's like it's, Paul said to the Romans, who are you to judge another master's servants? He's able to make a servant stand or fall. Now, hopefully we're getting past that. I'd like to think that I, I don't want to be critical of, of anybody. I, I don't know. If there's a mega church that hasn't reopened, they may have things going on that I don't know. Who am I to say why they haven't reopened? Maybe it's breaking their heart, but maybe there's things behind the scenes that they just cannot open. We don't know. That's between them and the Lord. If there's little churches that no longer exist, that seems really sad, but what do I know? What do you know? If that's what the Lord allowed for someone in a certain area and that's the way it ended and that's how it goes, then he's got something different for those people. Titus didn't stay in Crete forever. And Timothy didn't stay in Ephesus forever. Nothing stays the same. And so we need just to, just to, to just let that, let that play out. So in considering other people's things and other people's factors, well, when it comes, again, I, I'm just going to say what we all know the Bible teaches. So we're to pray for leaders. 
We're going to pray for leaders. A real good gauge is if, if we say about political people, if we talk about them more than we pray for them, that's not a good sign. Right there, that's a bad sign. Because we're called to pray for them. Above all else. So even as Caesar Nero was doing what he did to the church, they were still praying for him. Now, we didn't live in that situation, nor do they live in our situation. I just know that if I'm praying for our leaders, I'm in obedience to God's word. If I make myself judge and jury of God's, of, of leaders that only can come from the Lord, good or bad, then I need to be really careful. Now, obviously in our country, we have freedom of speech and we can say things like, we can speak freely about our political leaders and hopefully not be arrested. When Posh was here, he was talking about, you know, there's been a lot of uprising in Russia over Putin and different things, and Putin's main rival, you know, they tried to poison him, and then he went back, and, and he's under house arrest, and so there, if you don't know much what's going on in Russia, they've been having, like, some large protests in the streets. Well, Pasha's kid almost got grabbed, because the young people out there saying, you know, you should be able to disagree with the president, and, and that, that the Russian Federation allows for that. Well, technically it does, but kind of doesn't. And they had, un, they had people in civilian clothes grabbing people, protesting, and throwing them in vans. But now those people are fighting back with lawyers against that, that that happened. But that's Russia. But like in Saudi Arabia, are you going to protest the king? <laughs> Go for it if you want to. But again, it's like different countries have different standards and different things. And we do have those freedoms. And we're allowed to use those freedoms. And we should use those freedoms. It's the marketplace of thought. I kept talking to Pasha about the marketplace of thought where you can have comparative ideas. And for a Russian that grew up during the Soviet Union, that's a hard thing to wrap his mind around. He'd be like, explain one more time. So basically, I have my thoughts, you have your thoughts, and there's other thoughts, and we put them all out there, and we talk about these thoughts, and we look at them from uh, pros and cons, and we come together as a majority, what thought we think is the best thought, to guide a people. That's democracy in the marketplace of thought. Now, totalitarian is, doesn't matter what you think. It's by force. So if either thoughts rule and reign over a people, or force rule and reigns over people. That's all he understands. We don't. So don't misunderstand me. I appreciate our freedoms. I like our freedoms. I'd like to keep those freedoms. And I'd like to see increased freedom. Believe me, I'm less government, more personal free choice. Nonetheless, though, the Bible teaches us that we pray for those in authority. And we forgive those who spitefully use us and abuse us. That's the word of the Lord. For our journey. So... We don't need to meddle. If we're going to be fruitful in our journey, just know what, what is our stuff and focus on our stuff and stay out of other people's stuff. Because nothing's worse than when you meddle with other people's stuff that God says, don't meddle with this stuff. That's not your stuff. Because then you get chastened, then you look stupid, and then you have to apologize. So this is better not to meddle and harass. It's better just to obey and stay in your lane as you're getting out of your rut from Mount Seir and headed north. Stay in your lane and just do it. And the final thing we see is uh, the, what is our battles. The third relationship is with the giants. And why does it have to be giants? <laughs> why does it have to be giants? Why can't we like, have battles against like, weak little people? It's got to be giants. Like, do you ever feel like that when you're serving the Lord? It's like, why do these things happen to us? Why does it feel like I'm in the Wizard of Oz and the flying monkeys are at my house? Because that's how it works when you live by faith. Every step forward in our journey with faith, every step from Mount Seir toward the promised land and crossing the Jordan River, it is a battle. But it's a battle that belongs to the Lord. And in the fullness of these verses that I did not read, I, I read the key verses of Sihon and Og, it, God explains that he hardened their heart because God wants to 
God was bringing judgment on those kings, but he wanted to prove to Israel he was with them. It was the prelude before they go in to conquer the land. He wanted them to go into the land with confidence in him that he was going before them, that it was not their battle, it was the Lord's battle. And you might even say it's not even their judgment because it's not, it's God's judgment. It wasn't people's judgment against people. It was God's judgment against those people groups. And so they got to fight these battles. But in the text in chapter three, it says that the bed for Sihon was 13 feet long. I'm 13 feet. Why, is it, why do we have to fight someone that has a bed that's 13 feet? They're frame. They're literally giants. These are, these are the remnant of the superhumans. The, in the DNA, there are human beings that were like probably 13 feet. We're, we're a degeneration of the original Adam and Eve. I personally believe that they were much taller than most of us even could comprehend. I mean, the elephants were bigger. Horses were bigger. Lions were bigger, right? Like, God talks about these giants, and he says that the bed frame for Sihon was nine cubits, which is probably at least 13 feet. So someday, it's like the movie that came out a couple of years ago, Facing the Giants, right? Remember, it was a popular Christian movie, Facing Giants. We all face giants. But wouldn't you rather let God do something great through you and show himself great, so there's a wonderful testimony from it, than just to do less than great or average? Like, we always taught our kids to pursue excellence in whatever they did. And even when both our boys played baseball two years apart on seventh grade baseball teams that never won a game. I talk about this sometimes. You know, baseball season is a long season. It starts in January and goes to June. Six months is a long time for a 13-year-old boy to play baseball and never win a game. That's 30 games of going home a loser. But I made sure, by God's decree, I mean, Timmy was on a team like that in seventh grade, and then Luke was on a team like that, no relation to the first team. But I made sure those boys pursued excellence and never dumbed down to a losing record. I made sure that they were winners on losing teams. I made sure that they gave excellence regardless of what anyone did around them. I made sure they knew how many outs were on, going on, what the next play was, whether they're down by 20 runs, because Timmy's team sometimes were down by 20 runs in the third inning. You know, it's very humbling when the other team switch hits everybody because you're that bad. But we did get better, and no one was switch hitting against us in the last six games, and we didn't get mercied anymore. We all face giants, and, and God allows us to face giants so our confidence is in him, and that we don't quit. Quitting is never, ever an option with the call of God, right? It is never an option to quit. It is never an option to quit. And we do face giants. They don't always have 13-foot bed frames either. Cancer, you can't even see the first cell. How many people do we know and love who have lost their life to cancer? Cancer's a giant. In all my study of human history, I cannot believe how many of the most powerful people in the world died painful deaths of cancer in previous centuries, in their 40s or their 50s. All that power, all that wealth, and they're a giant they couldn't even see within them took their life. How about drugs and alcohol? Boy, you know, you, you see, uh, in Colorado, I, I noticed when I was at like uh, Circle K or whatever uh, at uh, Super King, the grocery store, two O's, super. <laughs> it's a different world. That, that, that the, the, the one beer brand, instead of having a six-pack, they got the three-pack. And it looked really appealing. It's right there by the checkout stand. A little three-pack of, and I was like, wow, look at, look at that. That looks so harmless. 
Right? That can be someone's giant. That's my sister's giant. That's why she went to a meeting. You'd be reminded you can never go there. That will. I've watched alcohol destroy so many people's lives and kill them. Destroy their liver, vital organs, their brain. Go insane. There's a lot of giants out there we have to fight. But the Lord fights those battles. Like when David charged for Goliath, he said, the battle belongs to the Lord. And so God allowed them in their journey to have to face giants. He goes, Edom, don't mess with them. Don't meddle with them. They're your brethren. Moab, don't mess with them. They're your distant cousins. That's theirs. I give them. But listen, I'll tell you, you're gonna, you know. And, they, and would, it, it would seem, if you look at the numbers of Israel versus Edom and Moab, that Israel had much superior numbers. Like, hey, we want to fight those guys. We can fight the brethren down the street. There's more of us than them. And their bed frames are six feet, not 13 feet. Kind of like, no, that's not your battle. Your battle's right over here. Sihon and Og. It's like, what? <laughs> We've got to fight the giants. But that's life, is fighting giants. When the courts rule against you, when you get a summons on a very complicated thing and you're dragged into someone else's drama, or you're managing someone else's estate when they passed away and you realize how many things they didn't do right. It's just so much anxiety. Or you have people that... Ah, they just won't do the most common sense thing and you're affected by it. And no matter what you say to them, and you can't reason with it. They just won't listen to you. Or the giants, even on the journey, when you take steps of faith and you, you, you just move into something totally out of your realm and you thought, well, if everything went wrong, it would look like this because sometimes we think like that. Oh, I know what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And then it happens. And you're like, see, I told you so. But still the Lord's in it. Just because it goes away that, I mean, Paul, the Lord prepared Paul that when he got to Jerusalem, it was going to be a bad thing. But God said, I'll be bigger than that bad thing. I'll be with you in that bad thing. That's a giant. How'd you like to be on the way to Jerusalem? The prophet pulls out his belt and goes, this is you, dude. That's a giant. Now, I prefer the easy, hey, uh, Mr. Prophet, do, do you have a different prophecy? Like how to think and grow rich, like that kind of prophecy? I mean, the belt saying I'm going in bondage and is not really like, I'm not feeling that one. But that is the giant that Paul would face. And in obeying the Lord and facing that giant, what do we get? We get the prison epistles. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians. Those are pretty comforting books for the human experience, right? See, this journey for the 38 years after Cadus Brina, of everyone that was under 20 at Cadus Brina, so in that timeline, it takes them as old as 58 now to enter in. It all served a purpose. And, and their relationship with Mount Seir was, you don't live here don't stay here, turn and get out of this rut and get moving toward the promises. The relationship with the brethren was like, these are your brethren and they're not, they're not the same as you. They're different than you. Respect them. Respect what I have for them. Respect their territories. Don't take anything from them. Don't meddle with them and don't harass them. That's not you. And this, this is your battle because you will have battles. And these are warm-up battles for bigger battles. But I'm bigger than any walls you'll face. I'm bigger than any giants you'll face. And I'll see you through it because the battle is mine. And that's what he taught them on their journey for 38 years. So when you get to the book of Joshua and they're on the cusp of the promised land, they have been molded in shape for 38 years to know don't go in circles being carnal. Don't fight the wrong people that are your brethren. And don't be afraid of giants because the battle is the Lord's. And this is what we are to learn from Moses' recounting of these events and this journey in chapters two and three tonight. So take heart, 
embrace the journey, embrace the process. And I know it's for the Jews and the wilderness wandering, but it's certainly, as it says in Corinthians, these things are written for our admonition, for our training, for our faith and our growth. And I'm certain for all of us here tonight, and certainly as a church, and for me personally, there are things that we can all learn from these three relationships that speak to us the fullness of what Christ will do in our life as we abide in him, as we seek him, as we obey him, as we go forward in him. Because of all the giants you could face, what is bigger than the cross and the grave itself? Is not the fear of death in the grave the greatest public execution? Jesus is our great high priest. There's never anything we face that he hasn't faced. And he's able to comfort us and guide us to the uttermost and whatever that is. So praise the Lord. We're not on the journey alone. We're on it with it each other. And the Lord Jesus is the author and finisher of it. And we can trust him in his faithfulness in all of it.